Hello and welcome to the TES News and Analysis podcast. My name is Mary Louise Clues and I'm news editor at TES and your host for this week's podcast. With me today is Gronia Hallahan, our senior analyst at TES and also one of our resident exams experts. We'll be talking to her about some A-level data that's come out this week, um, plus another story on analysis. We also have Callum Mason, who's our correspondent at TES, and he's also our catch-up uh, lost learning expert, one of the areas that he covers on TES. The reason I've got those two on the podcast today is because we've got two really important stories that look at the A-level data that came out this week, um, looking at the trends in the results for exams that were sat this year. And also we had a, a, a really important story for schools around catch-up funding. And those stories are really linked, so that's why we chose to speak about those today. First up, we're going to be talking about the A-level data. Now, Gornia, you can talk us through this, but the top line on this on this data showed us that the disadvantage gap, the gap, that's the gap between disadvantaged students, students that are on preschool meals and their peers uh, actually widened and was the widest since they started collecting data on this area um, in 2016-17. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's one of those I'm shocked but not surprised type revelations that we got yesterday. Uh, the, the data gave us a bit more, a bit more detail into what the exams that were taken last summer actually all meant. Of course, these are the first in-person exams that we've had for two years. Students are back in those exam halls after being out for the due to all the disruptions because caused by the pandemic. We've had teacher assessed grades, centre assessed grades, and these are actually exam grades. And of course, I think it's important to mention that these exams were taken slightly differently to what we normally get. Students did have a bit of pre-release. They had reduced content on some of their papers. But these sorts of measures where we look at how disadvantaged and advantaged pupils did are really important. And what's important to note is that, you know, we can actually compare these, these stats because it's they all took the same exams. Um, it's also really important to make to make it clear that although we're talking about disadvantaged students, these pupils receive no extra help. That funding stops once they hit 16. So we, we take it, and we look at these measures and we can see year upon year that we've got this gap. But it's really important to take into account the fact that that funding does stop for, for schools and sixth form colleges. So, yeah, how big is this gap and what does it mean? We've got um, poorer students, average A-level a result was C+, and that's almost a full grade lower than their wealthier peers' average B grade achieved in those exams. And if we look back to how those pupils did in that same cohort in their GCSEs, you know, it's not a big surprise because disadvantaged students did... Um, didn't do as well as their advantaged classmates in those exams either. So it's a gap that's there. It continues to widen and it's wider this year. And there's lots of different reasons why that gap might have widened this year. And I think, you know, we can perhaps have a bit of a, bit of a chat about that now. I mean, Mary Lou, what, what are your thoughts? Were you surprised by that stat? I wasn't surprised based on uh, the analysis and the projections and some of the data that's come out from organisations like like EPI from from, from um, FFT, they they've shown that over the last couple of years that students that were about to sit exams, exam cohort groups were were missing have, have missed an awful lot of school time, an awful lot of learning. Mm. So, mm. I mean, it's surprising that the gap is is the widest it's ever ever been. But the, so the writing has been on the wall. I mean, it's interesting. It'll be interesting now to see 
what's done about it, whether there seems there needs to be more um, more focus on um, catch up and in, in interventions, perhaps um, there needs to be money focused on um, students sitting their A-levels next year or even just starting yeah. out on their A-level programs. Uh, what yeah. what are your thoughts, Gwenya, on that, on that? Do you think we'll see a, a, a different reaction from, from the DfE? Well, I think it's, it strengthens the argument that, that uh, pupil premium funding does need to carry on into sixth form. I don't know quite why we can, can say that it should stop when you've got data like this. I think that when we think about the experience of disadvantaged pupils during the pandemic, it's no surprise that we're in this this point we are now and that their their attendance was lower, their access to um to materials in school was reduced even though those students were allowed back into schools. We know that that wasn't always possible in all schools and so their their learning at that point was disrupted. You know, it's really complicated. Callum, what what are your thoughts about about the experience of disadvantaged students during the pandemic and how this has been reflected in the A-level results. Yeah, so I think in the summer, what we heard was that there was a disadvantage gap before the pandemic and perhaps the the, the pandemic has, has widened that or, or has definitely not helped to close it. And I guess what we are looking at at the moment and what we've, we've heard about throughout the past two years is catch up um, and how that can be used to maybe help those disadvantaged students and, and close close that gap. And I guess it's one of those things with catch up where it's been going on now for two years. It's it's um started in pretty much September twenty twenty. So it's its third third real academic year. But we're still sort of seeing what works and what doesn't. And it'll probably be a little while before we start to see what the what the benefits are. And we've got evidence base for for what that what those benefits are and what helps pupils the most i think it's it's not surprising that uh, we've had people talking about the dangers of a covid generation and lost generation in fact one of the um ministers in the dfe used to before when he was chair of the education select committee robert halfen used to talk about the dangers of creating a covid generation that have um have their, have their life chances blighted by the the disruption caused by the pandemic and the efforts we really need to put in very quickly to counter that. In fact, the DfE's response to the story that they, they sent over on um, on the A-level data was to say, we know that, um, that the pandemic caused disruption to learning and that's why we've put five billion into into our catch-up programme over the, over the last couple of years and, and also set to, to run over the next two years as well. However, the that effort is probably not as plain sailing as the as the government might like us to um, to believe, is it, Callum? Um, could you just? I know you've had a an, an important story on the latest with um, with the catch up program uh, this week, but could you just talk us through just a, a quick summary of kind of what it was intended for and kind of how how it was structured at the start and and how it's um, developed over the last couple of years. Absolutely. So to set a bit of context, I think the, the phrase catch up was probably first used in about June 2020. So when we were really in the midst of the of the pandemic, a lot of people's most people's were still were still sort of learning remotely at that stage. And then at that time, if, if you can cast your mind back, if you want to, um, you probably don't to those uh, joint press conferences that we often had with the with the prime minister and government ministers. And they announced a, a COVID catch up plan at one of those. And the Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, called it a national priority. And the, the aim of this was 
I guess, to bring a package that would, would help students catch up and particularly disadvantaged students. So the flagship element of that catch up program was the, the national tutoring program. And the aim was to get schools to be able to access high quality tutoring for disadvantaged pupils at a, at a reduced cost. Um, and it's interesting that that catch up was was flagged in this in this response to the to the A level story because the NTP, the National Tutoring Programme, the main focus of catch up, is is only available for students up to up to year eleven. Um, not to say that that won't have a effect on their sort of A level results in the future because we're going to start seeing the cohorts that were in the lower years of of secondary school. Um, during the during the pandemic, we're going to start seeing them move into A levels in in the future. And the NTP, the National Teaching Program, has has had a it's had a difficult ride. But I think, in in fairness, I mean, when it was first set up, it was it's a difficult thing to to launch a national program like that. But there were there were some difficulties in that first year, so twenty 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 one, for example, with with getting getting the tutors in in all the areas of the UK. I think schools northeast at the time basically said that there was a difficulty in in some cases with getting getting the tutoring provision that they needed so there has been difficulties last year there was the second year of the program a lot of schools in a way disengaged with the with the ntp because of difficulties with the with the provider that was leading it randstad and i think they found that there's difficulties using sort of the hub the admin side of things this year i think generally Schoolies I've spoken to have said that the admin side of it is a little bit easier because all the money is sent straight to schools. So they have a bit more flexibility. But the problem has been them them sort of using it because schools, as we know, have a a, a difficult, difficult time managing their budgets at the moment with all the financial pressures that they have. And they still have to subsidize part of the tutoring costs themselves, which makes it quite difficult, I think, to to sort of fund the the total amount of tutoring that they want to pay for. Great, that's a great sort of whistle stop tour of kind of the last couple of years. Yeah. And um, yes, it was uh, it was interesting. It was to remember, recall that it was um, announced with such great fanfare by Boris Johnson, that's mm. a, a national yeah, priority. Um, and of course, it didn't get off to, to a flying star because the person that was hired by Boris Johnson to devise how we were going to deal with catch up was um, the catch up. The catch up czar was uh, wanted to wanted about five times as much money. I can't remember the actual figure uh, as as was um, allocated in the end. So ended ended up resigning. So it wasn't wasn't the most auspicious start to the program. But bring us but right right up to date. So Callum, I think you put in an FOI to look at. So last year, with all the problems with Randstad and all the ad, the admin and kind of difficulties schools were having booking tutors through the National Tutoring Programme and also the, the backdrop of, of lots of um, staff being sick with COVID, um, access to tutors w- was difficult. There, I think there are many reasons, but we became aware that lots of schools weren't using their the money that they'd been allocated by the government uh, because the government started talking about putting pressure on schools and, and naming and shaming schools, didn't they, that, that, that weren't using their, their tutoring money. Um, and I think that you, well, I know, Callum, that you've, you've discovered the scale of that situation this week. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, yeah, I can do. Um, so last year, there were three strands to the NTP, just to give a bit of context. There was the academic mentors, um, there was the tuition partners, and they are both sort of external things that you get in uh, that are more monitored by Ramsad. And then there was the school-led element, which is where you could you could still use external tutors, but you sorted it yourself. 
And the first two pillars that I just mentioned there, because they were involved so much admin, they were shunned a little bit by by heads. And the bit that most heads sort of picked up on was the school-led. Um, and if you use the school-led tutoring route last year, you had to basically keep a detailed record of what you'd what you'd use the tutoring on. Um, you had to produce a statement um, this September or this October. It was originally meant to be September, but it, it got pushed back because of the, the morning period. And you had to produce on that statement how you would use the funds, essentially, to make sure that public, public money was used correctly. And we found for FOI that hundreds of schools, 850, actually missed the deadline for getting this form in. And as a result of that, they're going to have all the cash they were allocated originally clawed back and in some cases so all schools are meant to fill this in even if you got allocated cash and didn't use it so the dfe doesn't know at this stage how many of those schools are schools that in all the admin and difficulty of doing this have sort of got not been able to fill in the form and it, there's a lot of difficulties and it's it's a it's a complicated process but they don't know how many are in that category and how many are in the category that just opted not to use it because they found it to be such a faff perhaps or perhaps they got quite a low allocation and they thought this isn't actually going to be that useful to us so as, as jeff barton the general secretary of the association of school and college leaders said when he when he saw this story he said it's in no one's interest to see this money clawed back really it's been allocated we want to spend it so he's saying they should be really accommodating with the schools who missed the deadline but I think also a wider point from that is we probably need to look at, the DfE probably needs to look at, and policymakers need to look at, why did schools not use the cash if they didn't use it? And what can be done going forward this year to make sure that it is used more widely and the money that's been given to the Treasury is used properly? Because if it goes back to the Treasury, it's not probably going to come back into education anytime soon. So I think we want to make sure, or people in education want to make sure that that money is being used and it's being used as effectively as possible. Absolutely. I mean, 850 schools around that, that number, wasn't it? Surely, if you've got that many that weren't able to, to, to use the money or to kind of to make it work effectively, to make the system work effectively, then there's got to be a problem with the system design, hasn't there? Somebody somewhere has got to be sat there thinking, hmm, maybe it's not them, maybe it's me, like maybe it's my form. <laughs> At some point, the penny's got to drop. The people aren't willfully like missing this deadline that actually the reasons mm. behind it would explain a lot of the problems and they could address that instead instead of making a name and shame and clawing back the money. Why would you claw back the money? That just seems so counterintuitive politically impossible i would have thought at, at this point in time it'll, it'll take more time and effort to take the money back than it would be just to, to redesign the form or to find out why they didn't fit in the form yeah i mean a lot of heads we spoke to that story said look they they recognize that public money has got to be used properly they they recognize that they there has to be sort of accountability for that but at the same time yeah schools are really struggling for money as it is it does seem, I think one had said, it seems like a tone-deaf move, really, to be clawing back that money um, at, at this time. And also, like, they don't have, like, infinite amounts of time to do things. Like, what do they want them to stop doing in order to make the time to fit in this form? Because it's not just a matter of sitting down and filling in a form. Like, we, we all need to be really clear that that's, it's quite an arduous task. It requires, like, evidence-keeping and, and keeping track of stuff. Like, it's not a 20-minute a job that's been put off. 
So what do they want them to not do in order to fill in this form? It's just heaping admin tasks upon admin tasks. And when you think about how the ratio of adults to children in schools is just changed so that they've cut so much admin staff and so much support staff mm. who's doing it mm. it's oh and, and then they then they wonder why we don't have enough head teachers <laughs> yeah i think this has been the story of a lot of school leaders lives hasn't it over the past few years um mm. Mm. obviously yeah. hired to the job to to sort of education and they end up becoming people who have to basically be in a way business people or have such an admin, mm. admin role that it's mm. that it's difficult to focus on the education isn't it yeah Thanks so much for that. It's really interesting. And we'll be coming back to that to that issue and that story as things develop and the DfE decides what they're going to do with that situation and with that money in terms of that clawback. Finally, another important piece we had up on our, uh, the analysis section of our site this week was uh, that Gronny can talk us through. I think it was a piece from, so Sufian Sadiq from the Chiltern Learning Trust, is that right? And he was, uh, he, he wrote a piece about... Um, how it's important amidst all the reforms of initial teacher training and continuous professional development for teachers that have gone on in terms of the organisations that are delivering it, the forms of those gone on in the last on the last couple of years. Um, it's important that we don't lose the teacher kind of wisdom and expertise that are held within those organisations. Could you talk us through a bit more of the detail on that? Yeah, so Sufian Sadiq, he's the director of um, of the teaching school at the Chiltern Learning Trust, and this piece is really a bit of a come on, guys, let's not let's not make some big mistakes here. That lots of change has been happening, and I think that the 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 point about ITT and CPD is that this affects everyone, everybody who works in a school, because the new teachers that are coming in to teach with you alongside you in the classroom, you know, you should you should be worried about the state of ITT. Sometimes people might say. You know, ITT, that's, you know, things that teachers who are new, newer teachers, they've got to worry about it. No, like this is for everybody to worry about. And of course, teacher CPD and what you're going to be asked to do, this will definitely affect classroom teachers, school leaders. It's a piece that I think you need to be clicking and sharing and attaching to emails to send around everybody in your department. So what's it all about? He's talking about the talent pool in ITT and CPD being depleted because of the changes that have happened. Things like the fact we've gone from 750 teaching school alliances to 87 school hubs and the way that the reaccreditation for ITTs worked. And he does make the point, I should say that he you know, caveats all this, that it's not necessarily a bad thing that streamlining's happened. He says himself that 750 school alliances was perhaps a little bit too many. But that now that it's been done, we need to be really careful about what happens next. You know, I, I really feel like the, the whole piece has got the tone of, you know, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. And fast change risks bad decisions being made. He makes the call for rival, rivalries between mats and schools to be put to one side. And that's something that I hear an awful lot when I go into schools about how they wish that there was a bit more of a general, like we're all in it together focus and that people didn't think more of it as a competition. Something that I think uh, league tables just contribute to. And then he mm -hmm. also makes a point, I, I really like this bit, he talks about how they chose... Um, chose the, the schools that, that were going to become the hubs and they, they use things like progress eight scores. And it says, after all, being brilliant in one aspect of a discipline doesn't necessarily translate into success in a different aspect. Just look at successful Premier League footballers who have tried their hand at management and being found wanting. 
So I think it's, you know, it's definitely food for thought. I think it will resonate with a lot of teachers. So it's fun to one to read and share. So is it so is it the situation that people are kind of moving into very different roles in in terms of the the kind of reform of these organisations? So so with the analogy of um, football players becoming managers, I mean that that happens in lots and lots of different um, professions. Oh no, no. So he's he, he's saying that just because a school mm-hmm. has great progress eight schools, right. that doesn't necessarily mean that they're best placed to help other schools achieve uh, similar progress eight okay. schools. Got it. You know, like it's the way that we use these these. these the things that we use to decide who should be doing what perhaps mm. could be questioned and uh-huh. that it needs a bit bit of a close, closer scrutiny. I see. Fantastic. That's a really interesting read. Thanks for talking us through that one. So that's it from us for this week. I'm just left to say thanks very much to Callum Mason and to Gronia Hallahan and I've been Mary Louise Clues. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>